This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. And I heard the gear motor start running, and it probably ran for three, four seconds, somewhere in there, and all of a sudden, it stopped, and there was darkness around me. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. In today's episode, we're talking with Steve Getter, president of the Minnesota Seaplane Pilots Association. Recently, Steve had an interesting situation at night, and he's going to tell us all about it. Interestingly enough, during this scenario, Steve used his cell phone in flight, and uh, that caused us to think about the rules around cell phone usage. So after Steve's story, we bring in Jared Allen, senior attorney for AOPA's legal services plan, and Jared talks us through the rules around cell phone usage in flight. So this should be an interesting episode. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us, Steve. You're welcome, Richard. Glad to be here today. Great. So we have Steve Getter with us. Steve is a commercial pilot, single-engine land, single-engine sea pilot, multi-engine land. He's a CFII, uh, multi-engine instructor, got about 2,000 hours in general aviation airplanes. And I know Steve through, he is the president of the Minnesota Seaplane Pilots Association, and he runs one of the funnest uh, conventions around the aviation industry at Madden's on Gull Lake there in uh, in Minnesota, the Minnesota Seaplane Pilots Association. So, Steve, great to have you on the show. Well, thank you and welcome. And uh, since you did put the plug in there for uh, MSPA, Richard, I'll add that the uh, safety seminar that you're talking about, uh, we host just the third weekend in May to kick off the seaplane state, uh, flying season here in Minnesota, and uh, certainly we attract people from around the region. We bring in speakers such as yourself. Uh, so anyone that's interested in coming and uh, learning more about aviation safety and uh, having fun with a bunch of seaplane pilots, uh, more than welcome to join us. Yeah, fantastic. And, and, and I can attest it is, uh, it is an enjoyable. You always have good speakers lined up, and uh, it's, always, uh, it's also quite a lot of fun, too. So look forward to seeing you there again this May. I'm looking forward to it. But in the meantime, uh, you and I are uh, Facebook friends, and you posted an incident that you had night flying here recently that uh, both of us thought the audience would really enjoy hearing uh, what happened to you in that night flight and how you handled it. So do you mind sharing that with us? Uh, Tee it up for us. What happened? 
Okay, well, absolutely. Let, let me give you just a, a little bit of background. Uh, the the airplane that uh, I was flying, uh, and this is uh, two weeks ago, is a 1958 uh, J-model Bonanza. Uh, my wife and I, uh, she's also a pilot. Uh, we have owned the plane now for about four years. We have flown all over the country uh, in the plane. We've been to Florida multiple times, Texas multiple times. Uh, it has been a excellent and reliable airplane for us. Uh, we've got a nice STEC 30 autopilot in it. We've, uh, you know, IFR GPS. Uh, we have spent a lot of time in uh, IMC in the plane. Uh, so my uh, wife is actually off uh, learning to uh, become a first officer for a regional airline. And I hadn't been out flying for uh, a couple days, and the weather up here in Minnesota had not been uh, the most conducive to going out and just having a fun flight. Well, two Thursdays ago, it was an absolutely gorgeous night uh, to go out and fly. And so I headed out to the airport. I was actually had uh, I was going to do a quick flight and then had a few projects at the hangar that I was going to uh, accomplish. We're based out of an airport called Air Lake, which is just south of the uh, Twin Cities metro area. I took off out of there, and my plan was to fly up along the west side of the Class Bravo airspace, I, I do a little bit of uh, night uh, sightseeing uh, of the Twin Cities skyline, and then come back to uh, Lakeville and land. As I was coming back, um, I was passing the Flying Cloud Airport, which is uh, in Delta airspace, and I uh, thought, you know what, I'm going to go in and land at Flying Cloud. So I pulled up the ATIS, called the tower. They were not very busy at all. As I'm uh, coming into the field, they cleared me to land probably five, six miles out. Landed, uh, I, especially at night, uh, don't do touch and goes in a complex airplane typically. Uh, so I taxied back to the runway, did my pre-takeoff checklist, uh, let them know I was ready to go. So at this time, is it... Uh, are you in civil twilight, or is it total darkness, and is there a moon illumination? What's the set, set the scene for us in terms of the visibility there? Sure. It, it's total darkness. Uh, we're some t- somewhere around uh, probably 6.30 in the evening, okay. so uh, in the northern latitudes up here. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're pretty dark at that point. Uh, there was not much of a moon that night, uh, maybe about a, a quarter moon, but yeah. a, a very... Clear evening, lots of, uh, of stars out, uh, and that's one of the great things is uh, it, it was nice and clear that evening. Previous couple evenings had uh, been MVFR-ish, yeah. and uh, I thought about going flying, and I chose not to. And in the end, I think that was a good choice if this was uh, going to happen on the next flight. Yeah, so a nice night to go up and just rehack your currency, right? It's a r- really clear night, no weather issues to worry about gets night early in the winter time, so just go up and sort of rehack your night currency is what this was all about, right? It, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. Okay, I'm sorry. So so now you're, you're at Flying Cloud. You've landed. You're taxiing back for another takeoff. And, and at this point, I uh, call the tower. The controller clears me to take off. And, again, it is a beautiful, cool night uh, rolling down the runway. A uh, little bit of back pressure. The airplane starts climbing uh, very quickly. You know, we're uh, even with the gear still down. I'm starting to approach a thousand foot per minute climb. Kind of smiled to myself. Yeah, nice. Reached over, pulled the gear up, and I heard the gear motor start running. And it probably ran for three, four seconds, somewhere in there. 
And all of a sudden, it stopped, and there was darkness around me. And this is when it took me a little bit of time to start processing what actually had happened. Um, so it, it, in hindsight, it's a great thing that I had a engine running in front of me and the airplane was flying and, and climbing great. Um, I actually looked out at my uh, left wing and saw that the uh, landing light was out. And I, first thing that went through my head was, well, maybe I uh, hit the landing light switch when I pulled the gear up or something. Mm. They're, they're right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Reached back over, hit both landing light switches uh, to the up position. They were already there. And I started looking at the panel, and sure enough, everything is completely gone. Hmm. Uh, So it's like, okay, I've just had a complete electrical failure. So you're totally dark in the cockpit now. There's no electronics whatsoever? Radio's quiet, everything? Radio's quiet. Uh, This was the point I realized, well, I can't uh, talk to my friends and flying cloud tower at this point Um, i knew that uh, they had a jet coming in from the south when i took off i was cleared uh, on a maintained runway heading and they were going to call my turn to the south so at this point uh, i've come to some acceptance of uh, what is going around on around me and i thought well i'm just going to keep flying west and I'm going to leave the Delta airspace, and once I'm out of the Delta airspace, uh, we'll begin the uh, troubleshooting process. About how high were you, Steve, off the ground when you, I mean, you couldn't, be, couldn't have been that high off the ground because the gear was in transit. So what are you, 500 feet or so, maybe 1,000 feet? I, I was not uh, even that high, Richard. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm someone that as soon as I have a positive rate of climb, I'm going to bring the gear up. Uh, so I, I was probably... 50 to 100 feet off the ground when I started bringing the gear up. Yeah. Um, So that was one of the things that I considered, of course, is, uh, okay, I want to continue climbing. Uh, The Minneapolis Bravo airspace above me was at 3,000 feet, so I chose to climb up to uh, to 2,500 feet. I thought that would be a safe altitude for troubleshooting. And now how are you seeing your uh, altimeter at this point? Do you have a flashlight you're using, or was it enough ambient light that you could see the altimeter? Or? The altimeter I was able to see fairly well with the amount of ambient light okay. that was in the uh, cockpit. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the airspeed indicator uh, when, when we get to uh, landing. But, okay. uh, some of the other instruments were a little harder to see based on their position in the panel, yeah. but uh, altimeter was fairly easy to see for me. Okay. So at uh, at that point, um, I did have my iPad was in the plane. Um, I got lucky, and the iPad that I had along that night actually has uh, a GPS receiver built into it. So uh, typically, iPad is hooked up to the links that we have in our panel for position, but this iPad actually had a GPS in it, so that was nice for my situational awareness as I was leaving the, the Delta airspace and wanting to make sure I remained clear of the uh, Minneapolis Quest Bravo airspace as well. Uh, so made sure I was out of the uh, Delta airspace. I turned down out to the south to give myself a little bit of room from uh, Flying Cloud and, and other airspace. And this is when I started thinking about the troubleshooting process and, and what I needed to go through. Yeah. And the first thing I did is uh, reached over the circuit breakers and our bonanza are all on the uh, right side of the panel. Uh, So I started feeling 
uh, for circuit breakers to see if anything was popped out. I took my flashlight out. I uh, looked at the circuit breakers as well. I didn't see anything that was uh, abnormal. So, Steve, that that flashlight, um, pretty important. It seems like you had that handy within reach, so you, so you didn't have to look for it. You could feel for it. Is is that accurate, or how do how do you do you do you wear a headlamp at night? You know, it seemed like a pretty important thing to have handy for you. You know, this is one of the great things uh, I would say about owning an airplane. You probably know this too. Everything is in the airplane where you uh, left it yeah. when you get into the plane. Uh, so the the flashlight is one of the pieces of equipment that's uh, next to the pilot's knee on the uh, left bulkhead. So I, I had uh, used it when I was starting the airplane, so I knew it worked. Uh, so that was a, a good feeling to be able to reach down and pull it out of its pocket uh, yeah. very readily. Yeah, you're right. In the Navy, and I do the same thing when I when I night fly. First, if I'm going to night fly for currency, I'll just change all the batteries. Why not? You know, it's it's a cheap insurance policy. Just go through and change the batteries. I love flying with a headlamp, so I keep a headlamp in the Navy on, but I keep one of those little bitty dial flashlights right at my right, uh, right at my right knee, basically where the console is in the middle, uh, and I know exactly where it is, so I could reach it, you know, very quickly. So sounds like you did the same thing which comes in handy because you're flying an airplane now in total darkness, only ambient light to see your, 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 your key instruments. And so reach over and feel the uh, circuit breakers and you look at them with a the flashlight and nothing there, right? It, exactly. It, and let me add, Richard, uh, that be, before I started moving around and started feeling for circuit breakers, um, you know, there, there were a lot of voices that were going through my head, uh, a lot of instructors and uh, people that I've talked to and people I've heard present. And, you know, the the, the mantra, fly the plane, kept mm. going through my head. Mm-hmm. And before I started looking for circuit breakers and, and the other things, uh, I made sure the airplane was trimmed very nicely. I made sure I had a, a decent power setting that was going to keep me at uh, a speed that uh, was below my gear speeds, but uh, still at a point that the airplane would be handling nice and uh, and flying nicely. As I started to become, uh, I'll say, focusing my attention on other things. Yeah, and I think you're right, Steve. It, it's it's That's such an important thing that could be underemphasized here because you did it so well, but you're 50 to 100 feet in at night, on a dark night, very little moon, you raise the gear and suddenly you have total electric failure. Um, and so... You know, you take a deep breath, just fly the airplane, maintain flying airspeed and a clear flight path. I'll figure everything else out, right? And so it was so important that you did that so well and so seamlessly, it seems like. And now you're just making very deliberate, conscious decisions. I'm going to exit Delta, climb myself up, and then I'm going to start this sort of investigative process when all that's under control. And so, you know, really nice job. And that, that's where you are at this stage. So uh, what, what happened from there? So after I came to the realization that I didn't think there was anything else that I could think of, and my my mind was kind of going to maybe there was a master solenoid problem or something like that because I have no power and Mm -hmm. uh, it should be coming in somehow. Um, At that point, I actually took a second. I picked up my cell phone from the right seat and I called my mechanic. And I, I said, uh, you know, Chuck, hey, I'm, uh, I'm up in the air. This is uh, what just happened. Uh, here is everything I've done. And can you think of anything else that I should be doing right now? 
And he said, no, go land the plane. Uh, so uh, I told him I'd talk to him when I was on the ground, and then it was time to start thinking about uh, getting back to Lakeville, our airport, and uh, landing the plane. Um, I, I did give some thought. Uh, as I said, I had left Flying Cloud, which is a towered airport. Uh, the lights are uh, on brighter there than they would be at home. Our airport has pilot-controlled lighting. Uh, but the lights at our airport are always on very dim. So I, I knew I was going to be going back to a runway that had some lighting. Um, and it's an airport that I have had instructors bring me into before at night uh, without lights on. So I, I thought, well, this is, this is something I know. This is something I've done. It's not a big deal. I'm going to go, go home and land. My thinking at the time was, well, I've lost communication with them. And... I knew they had other people uh, coming in, so I thought, well, let's let's not worry about that. Let's get out of their way. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel I was doing anything that endangered myself. I knew I would then have more time mm-hmm. to troubleshoot and figure out uh, what may have gone wrong. Um, I, w- I was going to talk to you about it in, in some of my lessons learned and yeah. some of what I found out after I landed, but I, I'll add this in now. Um as I was climbing out from the runway uh, and climbing out to the right, I, I noticed a flash uh, coming from my left side. And I started looking around, trying to figure out what this flash was. And I looked down at my uh, the battery box for my headset, and the LED on it is, is flashing. And it's like, well, it's dark in the airplane. That LED must be reflecting off my, uh, my left-hand window or something. Well, come to find out, as I talked with the tower controller uh, after I was back on the ground, they actually were giving me light gun signals in huh. case I wanted to return back to Flying Cloud. Interesting. Um, I probably, like a lot of pilots, had never seen a light gun signal from right. the uh, yeah. airplane. Yeah. And that uh, that thought didn't even cross my mind that uh, they might be telling me, hey, you're welcome to come back here. Now, how did they know that you had an incident that to, to start giving you light signals? So they were watching me take off. Uh, I was, if, if you look at the uh, layout of the airport, the tower is pretty much midfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was pretty much right in front of the tower, and they said the airplane disappeared. Oh. So here they're watching an airplane climb out on a, uh, on a gorgeous night, and... I went from having multiple landing lights and strobes and beacons on yeah. to disappearing. Yeah. And what she told me was, we could we could hear the airplane. We knew we knew you were still out there, <laughs> uh, but uh, you, you disappeared. So we figured you had an electrical failure and might want to come back and land. Interesting. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'll tell you uh, towards the end about a, a few more of my conversations. Yeah. With her. Great. Great. Okay. So, um, and what a, what an interesting uh, and, and great idea to get the airplane under control and then pick up the phone and call your mechanic uh, and, and how cool that he was available and could give you kind of a reassurance that uh, really no, you know, nothing else that he can think of for you to do except come back in and land the airplane. But how do you know you've had electrical failure? How do you know what the status of your landing gear is? Well, I, I, I knew the status of my landing gear. I knew they were not down. Okay. Um, and because uh, I, I heard the gear motor running before the uh, electrical power stopped. So that really was then my, my next thing. Now that I know I'm going back to land, it's getting the gear into a safe position. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I am a American Bonanza Society uh, BPPP instructor. Yeah. Uh, so I've been through their uh, ABS uh, Academy. I've, I've flown with Tom Turner, the director of the ABS Safety Foundation, uh, and I've gotten to to do that drill uh, of of cranking the gear down multiple times. And it's uh, it's always one of my favorite things to do with people when they. Uh, come to fly with me in a bonanza because sometimes you, you run across people that uh, maybe they didn't get to do that in their checkout or they've only done it on the ground once or twice. And uh, it certainly is different going through that uh, process in the air. I did have to chuckle to myself a little bit when I uh, pulled the uh, cover off of the, the gear handle because uh, one of the things I always uh, tell clients when I'm flying with them in the bonanza is, you know, if, if you've got an operable autopilot, uh, you're going to be turning around and you're going to be looking down as you're cranking the gear down. Turn that autopilot on. Yeah. And what we teach is you do about 10 cranks and then you look out and make sure the plane is still flying. Right. Well, here now I, I don't have the autopilot. <laughs> yeah. so it, it was kind of a chuckle. It's like, well, there there goes that piece of advice. Right, yeah. Uh, but that makes a great point is this would be, an, can can you paint for us the picture of in your cockpit, where is that? where is that cranking handle that you're talking about? Sure, in the Bonanza, it's actually uh, it's in the back seat um, where the spar comes through the airplane. There, there's a cover on top of it, and the gear motor and gearbox uh, sit underneath that spar cover. So really, it's right underneath uh, the pilots uh, in the middle. So you have to turn around and reach uh, down to the floor in the back seat to crank that gear down. Wow. Wow. Uh, so so you, it really is hard to, you, you really can't look out uh, while you're doing that. I'm a shorter guy. You might be able to uh, still see outside Richard, but I certainly can't. Boy, that is interesting because that is a scenario ripe for inducing spatial disorientation. When you're looking away from your flight instruments and, uh, uh, you know, trying to accomplish a task in the airplane, especially if your hand flying is naturally going to move in one direction or another, which you might not perceive so, yeah, I can see how that could, could really be a dicey, especially in IMC, but even on a very dark night. Um, so you got your, you got your handful here. It, exactly. Now, the, the good thing for me is typically in the Bonanza, it's going to take about 50, 360-degree turns of this gear handle to fully extend the gear. Hmm. Well, the gear had not come up all the way, so I probably had 10 to 15 turns uh, to get the uh, handle all the way to the stop. And the Bonanzas do have a fairly simple gear system. Uh, it's a mechanical gearbox that uh, goes out to push rods. And one, once you have that handle turned all the way and it won't move anymore, uh, the gear are in a position that they're down. And uh, by the nature of their design, they should be locked down. Of course, I didn't have any lights at that point in time right. to uh, tell me that, uh, yeah, there's a green glowing light that makes me feel good uh, in front of me. So, uh, you know, that, that was... Uh, a good feeling when I uh, rolled out and uh, the gear truly were extended and locked. Yeah. Okay. So you're. Uh, so there you are. You're. You're cranking that handle to get the gear all the way down, and you just crank it until the handle won't crank anymore. Right? Is what it, you're saying. And then, based on the design, the gear should be down. You can probably feel the drag at this point. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you can feel the drag. So. So at this point now, it's time to. Uh, I've got the gear down. Uh, it's time to start heading back towards the Air Lake Airport as well as start thinking about what I'm going to be doing when I get there. Yeah. What is this landing going to be like? So, Hey, Steve, what, 
what altitude did you decide to climb to while you're cranking the gear? And when you did that, did you decide that you're just going to stay in straight and level flight where you, you didn't have reference to an attitude indicator? It can be really dark up there in Minnesota, but were there enough lights where you had a pretty good horizon? Or can you talk us through how you were maintaining aircraft control during all that? Yeah, it, it, uh, the attitude indicator was uh, was working because that's driven by the vacuum pump. So, it, you know, that's one of the things. Uh, and you could see it with the flashlight or? or uh, you, you, you could see it with the flashlight okay. or the ambient light. Okay. Uh, so if my head was up, I, I could see that. Uh, it was also, it was an absolutely gorgeous night to fly, Richard. The Minneapolis and St. Paul skylines uh, were very visible. I could look out. I could see the lights for uh, Minneapolis International. So it was... Uh, being in the area it was, there was a lot of uh, ambient light in the city lights uh, around me, which made it easier to uh, see yeah. the attitude of the airplane. To answer your other question, I, I chose to remain at 2,500 feet. Uh, I know the area very well. I knew there were not going to be any uh, obstructions in between myself and uh, where I was going to the uh, to the airport. So I chose not to go out any farther away from the city where it would be darker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and stay where I was at 2,500 feet. Yeah. And you're just, were you able to, because you had, I think you said 15 to 20 cranks or something, just maintain straight and level flight while you were doing that? It took you, what, 15 seconds or so? That, that, that's correct. Straight and level flight took uh, 15 to 20 seconds. Uh, what we teach uh, is do 10 cranks, look back out, make sure your airplane's flying, do another 10 cranks. I looked out again after everything stopped moving, and then I I reached back once more and made sure that that handle wouldn't move and uh, that the gear were going to be down. Yeah, great. Okay, so at this point now, you've done your cranking. You believe the gear's down. You can feel the drag, probably maybe even hear it. But there's nothing, there's no way in there, no mirrors or any other way for you to see to confirm that the gear is down and locked, right? Yeah, the only thing that the Bonanza and some Barons have is... In between, underneath the panel, uh, in between the two pilot positions, uh, there's a little red arrow that's connected by a cable to the nose wheel. And that cable will move this pointer up and down uh, to tell you what the position of that nose wheel actually is. Uh, so I knew that that pointer was pointed down. Okay. Uh, so the gear are extended. Uh, are they truly extended all the way to the point that the... Uh, over-centering mechanism on the gear is going to keep them uh, extended when I land. That was the, the big question that was in my head. Yeah, yeah, okay. So then I, I, I'm heading towards the Lakeville Airport, and at this point I actually see that the lights at the Lakeville Airport are on. Hmm. And I thought, oh, well, th- this is kind of nice. There must be another plane in the uh, the pattern out there with the pilot control lighting. Uh, I'll have to be very careful and make sure that I don't get in the way of that other plane because they're not going to be able to see me and I'm not going to be able to let them know that I'm coming. But kind of nice that the lights are on for me and uh, it'll make that landing just a little bit uh, easier. Uh, As I looked at other factors for the landing, the Bonanza has electric flaps. So, of course, without my electric system, I was going to be doing a no-flap landing. Uh, Popping into the back of my head at that point was... uh, a flight this summer when uh, my wife was pushing me and challenging me and had me do a no-flap landing. And the first one she had me do didn't turn out uh, <laughs> as nice as I like my landings to. So it's like, okay, we, we need to be able to uh, to do this right tonight. Uh, 
I briefed airspeeds in my head without flaps, uh, not wanting to be fast or slow. I, I don't want to do something where I'm going to end up off the other end of the runway. I also don't want to be too slow. I know I'm going to be coming in over uh, some approach lights, uh, which hopefully will be lit, but may not be lit uh, if the lights go off uh, as I'm as I'm coming in. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, I'm a seaplane pilot, and when we land seaplanes in a glassy water situation, you really can't tell how high you are off of the water. And Richard, you got your seaplane rating this summer, so you you know that uh, right. very well. Yeah. Um, and and that's what I was thinking as. I'm briefing myself on how I'm going to do this landing. It, if it is very dark down there and, and only has minimal lighting, I'm going to treat the landing like you would treat a glassy water landing in a seaplane. You put the airplane into a landing pitch attitude. You adjust your power so you hit, you're coming down at 150 to 200 feet per minute, and you uh, you touch down and, and pull the power. So yeah, it's another thing uh, that I add in when people say to me, why do I need a seaplane rating? Because uh, I'll never be able to use it. Uh, I always tell people, you know, it just adds to your bag of pilot tricks. And uh, I, f- I found something uh, that evening uh, that the seaplane rating has brought to me that I probably would have never yeah. thought of if I hadn't experienced this. Yeah, I think that's great uh, relationship that you drew there because I, I had never thought of that until you mentioned it when you and I spoke. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that, that is an excellent um example of of transitioning skill sets yeah so the next thing i did we talked about the flashlight that i had and i knew that uh, as i'm coming down final i've already talked to you about the uh, airspeed on final being an important thing to me Um, this is when i started taking my flashlight and trying to figure out creative ways Um, my engineer's mind started trying to figure out how I could put this uh, flashlight somewhere in the cockpit so that it wouldn't move and it would point at the airspeed indicator. Mm. And uh, it, I kind of kept laughing at myself as I was, uh, you know, the fl- I'd put the flashlight somewhere, it would fall. It's like, okay, this isn't going to work. And it's like, well, I guess I'm just going to end up with the flashlight in my mouth pointing at the uh, <laughs> airspeed indicator when I'm on final. And uh, th- that's what I did, and it, uh, it ended up working just fine. Yeah, it it makes a good case for those headlamps, doesn't it? It, it really does. And yeah. uh, I have I have flown with those uh, in the past. I did not happen to have one with me this evening, but uh, and part of that is probably because our our cockpit is usually very well lit. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, did did not uh, have one. But yeah. uh, they are great lamps. I wonder also, uh, Steve, you know, the the uh, protection of night vision, you know, to be able to maintain your night vision and avoid white lights, I found helpful. Um, a lot of times when I night flight, uh, I'll go out and I'll practice a landing light off uh, night flight and, uh, you know, night landing. And they're really very easy to do as long as you preserved your night vision. But if you use a really high lighting inside your cockpit, if you lose the, use those white flashlights or if you turn the runway lights up too bright even, that can just destroy your night vision and you'll lose that depth perception. Did you find that um, since you were total lights out that you were able to preserve that night vision a little bit or was it always being disturbed by, by the flashlight coming on and off? You know, I, I'm actually really glad that you uh, brought that up, Richard. Uh, the, the particular flashlight I have uh, has a white light as well as it has red lights. Yeah. And the button for each of the white and the red, one is knurled uh, and one is smooth. So I did uh, hit the white light once earlier in the flight. Um, 
and I realized, oh, I, I pressed the wrong button. So by making sure I was using the right button on the flashlight and, and really taking care to not turn the flashlight on uh, hastily and make sure I was uh, feeling for the right button, I was able to preserve my night vision. So I, I felt very good about uh, what I was able to see as, as I was coming into the airport environment. Nice. So you're coming down finally. You got the flashlight uh, in your mouth, so you can see your uh, your final your no flap uh, final approach speed. Um, what happens from there? Well, uh, I had mentioned that when I was coming up to the airport, about five ten miles away, uh, the runway lights were on. Uh, pilot controlled lighting. They defaulted back to their uh, their off position. So I was going to execute the no lights landing, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, I knew that the approach light system was uh, somewhere between myself and the ground, so I wanted to make sure that I had a, uh, a high enough approach angle that I wasn't going to be uh, anywhere near those lights. Uh, as I was on a half-mile final, all of the runway lights came on again. And I thought, oh, oh wow, this is absolutely wonderful. Uh, now I've got plenty of light to, uh, to land, and I can see the runway. Uh, so it, it was very, uh, very welcoming uh, that those lights came on. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, from there, it, it really was a non-event. It was a, uh, a, a nice touchdown and landing, just like we uh, we trained for. Uh, it was nice that uh, I've had instructors that have pushed me over the many years I've been flying to do those types of operations. Uh, so the first time I was uh, doing it, was, it wasn't something new. So you know, I think anytime you have an instructor that's doing something, you say, oh, why, why, why are they pushing me this hard? Uh, you know, it, someday that, that might come back and, uh, and be very useful. Uh, at that point, I pulled off of the, uh, the runway, and I felt I, I had handled everything pretty well up to that point, and I was really glad to be on the ground. And I, I was really happy that my mind did not shut down. You know, oh, yeah. I, I almost felt like I was going to pull off the side of the runway and somehow just say, oh, boy, I, I'm done. No, it was, now I need to get the airplane back to the hangar. Uh, our taxiways are not lit at our airport, so I put on a glove. I stuck my uh, hand out the storm window and used my flashlight as my landing light to get back to the hangar. I uh, shut down the airplane outside the hangar, and the first thing that I thought of was now I need to get a hold of my controller at Flying Cloud and let her know I'm okay, as well as apologize for any inconvenience I had that evening. Yeah. I go into the hangar. Uh, I started texting people who might have the phone number for the uh, tower, uh, and I get a text from the gentleman who owns the flight school at Lakeville. And someone at Minneapolis Approach happened to have his uh, phone number, and he said, hey, Minneapolis Approach just called uh, looking for you. They want to know if you're okay. Uh, so I texted him back. I said, yeah, I'm fine. You have the phone number they called from. Uh, so I called up uh, Minneapolis Approach, and, you know, a aviation being a, uh, a small community, I, uh, I, they answered the phone, said Minneapolis Approach. I said, hello, this is 340 Quebec. I just had an electrical failure off of Flying Cloud. And the voice on the other end of the phone said, hi, Steve, how you doing? <laughs> so we, uh, it, that was nice and reassuring. Um, we talked for, uh, for a little bit, and I uh, then said, you know, I want to give uh, Flying Cloud Tower uh, a call as well. 
And when I uh, started talking to the controller at Flying Cloud, this is when some of the uh, the other side of the story uh, started to appear. And uh, all of the, the teamwork between controllers and myself as the pilot to get myself back on the ground safely. And it started with her telling me about, you know, how, yeah, you just disappeared. And we started giving you light gun signals, at which point in time it's like, oh, well, that's what that blinky light was uh, off to my left. I've never seen that before. Uh, the controllers at Flying Cloud Tower, knowing that I probably had an electrical failure and my data block on their scope had just gone back to a primary target, they worked with Minneapolis Approach to tag and track my primary target. And they were kind of looking at where I was going and what I might be doing to see if they could give me any assistance. And by the direction I was headed, they thought, ah, he might be headed back towards Lakeville. Uh, it turns out Flying Cloud Tower actually had a radio they were able to use in the tower to turn on the lights at Lakeville. Uh, so they, they activated the pilot control lighting. That's what I saw when I was 10 miles out is they had turned it on for me. They had no way to tell if the lights were on or not. So as I was getting closer to your lake, and at this point uh, I knew the lights had shut off again, they actually worked with Minneapolis Approach. Minneapolis Approach contacted another airplane that was in the area and had them go over to the air lake frequency and activate the pilot-controlled lighting for me. So it, it was uh, kind of a, a neat story to me that uh, there were multiple people on the ground that were looking out for me and making sure that I got back to an airport that uh, had lighting and then were following up with other people that they knew in the aviation community at Lakeville to uh, make sure that uh, I was on the ground and safe. Yeah, boy, isn't that, that is some fantastic situational awareness on their part. And then just some, some service to the aviation community on their part. What a, what a great story. What a great team effort that was on their part, uh, on, on your behalf. So, and it wasn't then really that after I got off the phone with everyone, I uh, opened up the hangar door. I got the airplane back into the hangar. Uh, and it wasn't until then I, I really sat down on the couch in the hangar and started reflecting on everything that uh, had happened that evening. And I, I took a few things uh, away from it. I think there are a few things that I probably would have done a little bit different or uh, maybe lessons learned. Uh, and, I, and I think there are a few things that uh, you know I learned about myself that evening as well. So I'd, I'd like to share those with you if that, that love, would be Love okay, to hear Richard. them. Yeah, I'd love to hear them. So, so here's one... Uh, Right after I, I had talked earlier about coming to that realization and acceptance of the fact that my electrical system just failed and, and now I have to deal with this situation, uh, I was climbing out probably somewhere around 2,000 feet at the time. And I, this is the first time I picked my phone up and I mentioned my wife is off in uh, Salt Lake City for training. I texted her. I said, I just had a total electrical failure. And I get text back right away. She said, oh, can you have your parents come pick you up at Flying Cloud? I said, I'm in the air. She said, oh, and then I thought, well, this is kind of silly. Uh, she might be able to help me troubleshoot, but I need to do that myself first. I need to set my phone down, and I need to uh, fly the airplane. Uh, I would say I wouldn't recommend to anyone to pick up and text as your first uh, 
uh, option and uh, controlling the airplane as you're climbing out. But uh, I think it did uh, kind of help solidify things in, in my head, that, uh, that that acceptance of the, the problem. Um, so it's, uh, it might sound a little bit silly, but it probably it helped me process that. And, okay, I need to deal with this. Get your game hat on and and uh, go be a pilot. Yeah, Steve. Interesting uh, comments or lessons learned that you, your observations on your use of the phone and texting airborne that can be quite a controversial topic. And so, I appreciate you sharing that because it's an interesting topic around the hangar these days. Yeah, it, I would fully agree with you. And I I didn't pick up the phone until I was uh, well above the ground, till I, I was sure that the airplane was uh, very stable. It, and one one of the things I, I will add, um, I said, well, she's not going to be able to help me right now. And I set the phone back down. And, I, and she had sent some other uh, messages, and I didn't look at them until I got back on the ground because I had made that decision. And when I talked to her after the incident, she actually made the comment. She said, you know, just because I was in Salt Lake City didn't mean I couldn't help you. Uh, she said, I could have gotten a hold of those air traffic control facilities. I could have made sure that lights were on for you. Uh, you could have used me to help you out uh, through some of those uh, those situations where other people ended up taking care of them for me. So I, I think from a CRM standpoint, there certainly is a time and a place. Uh, and like talking to my mechanic, getting help from the ground by whatever means you have available to you uh, it's certainly fair game in a situation like that. Um, I did not use the checklist when I did the emergency gear extension. And again, this is something, Richard, uh, when you teach, when I teach, we all talk about checklists. Anytime I teach an emergency gear extension, I emphasize that this is an abnormal procedure and you need to pick up that checklist and use it. Um, in this case, for some reason in my mind, and I, I think this was a mistake, I said to myself, well, you've got no electrical system anyhow, and that's really the only thing that that checklist does is gets the gear handle in the right position and isolates the electrical system from the, the gear system, so I didn't worry about it. Uh, so I would say if I had it all over to do again, I would definitely pull out that checklist uh, for the emergency gear extension. And, and there are a couple reasons for that. Uh, one, if somehow the electrical system would have come back on, let's say as I'm on short final, and I have not isolated that electrical system properly per the checklist, uh, that might have been uh, something where the gear start coming back up if I had missed something uh, when I did it by memory, uh, as well as when power was applied back to the airplane at some point in, in the future. Uh, I should have left the airplane in a, a safe co configuration. Turns out I followed the checklist properly uh, from memory, but I wouldn't recommend that. Yeah, that that's an interesting point, isn't it, Steve? You, you're right. You know, you and I both being instructors, we, we teach that and, and try to hammer that into folks. And part of the benefit of a checklist in this scenario is that it's one less thing you have to think about. In your case, you thought about it and you did everything right. A checklist will run you through all those so you don't have to go through the, oh, but did you think about this? Or, oh, just in case, you know, make sure you do this. The things that are so easy to forget under the, under the stress of the moment. And that's, what, that's the value of the checklist. Or at least just referencing it when, when you think you've completed all your actions, right? So, yep, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
The the one other piece of equipment you have not asked me about yet, Richard, which a lot of uh, other people did, they said, uh, Steve, where was your handheld transmitter? Yeah. I said it was sitting on the table in the hangar, just where it always sits. <laughs> um, so it certainly uh, would have been helpful to uh, to have that along that evening and allowed me to get the lights on myself to communicate uh, with people. Uh, so ha- having that uh, handheld transceiver certainly would have uh, made my evening potentially less complicated uh, than it was. So that, that's a takeaway of, uh, you know, as you're walking by a piece of equipment like that, we like to listen to it when we're sitting at the hangar. But uh, picking it up and carrying it into the airplane is certainly uh, not much more work than uh, just walking by it, right? Yeah, certainly a nice piece of equipment to have if, if it's available to you. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So on the, you know, what, what did I take away uh, about myself and what did I do well going into this situation? Uh, you never know when something like this is going to happen to you. Uh, and when something does happen, it, it's fly the plane and focus. Uh, it's think about your training. Think about all the voices of those uh, instructors that uh, have been with you in the past, uh, your, your friends, the the podcasts and other uh, ASF materials you've uh, watched, uh, and, and also focus on the, the systems knowledge of, of uh, what's going on, how are things interacting, whether it be the electrical system, whether it be the gear system, uh, and, and think through uh, the conditions of those systems and uh, what it's going to take for you to get uh, safely on the ground. The thing that kept going through my mind, and and this is the great thing about the failure that I did have to deal with, is I had an engine that was running just fine, and uh, I had no worries uh, about that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. uh, Knowing that uh, there's nothing in the electrical system failure that's going to cause the engine to stop running. And you knew you had plenty of fuel. You know, can you imagine the stress level that would have that would have picked up if you were low on fuel when you did this? You come in, you know, at night you run a little bit low on gas or something, and you have this anomaly happen. Fortunately, you took that out of play, right? You had plenty of fuel for the mission, so you didn't have to worry about that uh, stress factor. Yeah, it, it, that is uh, that is very true. We didn't uh, really talk about fuel at all, but uh, typically we leave the airplane fueled because uh, it's what's best for the fuel bladders. Uh, and it's always nice to have, even if it's just a short flight, to make sure that you have uh, plenty of fuel with you. So uh, unless there's a, a weight reason, uh, I, I always like departing with as much fuel as possible, even if it's for a short flight. You and me both. I just, uh, you know, you only have to run yourself lower than is comfortable on fuel one time to realize, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> and so um, carry a little bit of extra fuel wherever and whenever I can. Steve, I I wanted to go back to a decision you made that I also thought was interesting, and that is you you have this decision to go back to Flying Cloud, which is the class Delta, but you're Nordo at this point. Uh, You don't all the stuff you described to us. You you're not aware of that, right? You're not aware that they realize you have an anomaly and they're doing all these things on your behalf. That is correct. And instead of going there, you decide to go to your home field because, all in all. It was uh, a simpler place to go. It was where you would cause less confusion or issues with other uh, pilots or airplanes or, or operations, which I, I really think is, is commendable, the way that you think to get inside your brain to hear that kind of thinking. And 
then it was just a more familiar place to you. So that was the most comforting place, it sounds like, for you to take this anomaly where you thought you could handle it best. Is, is all that right, that summary of why you went to your, your home field? Yeah, that is very true. Uh, and obviously, if this would have happened somewhere between uh, Minnesota and Florida, uh, you wouldn't have that comfort level. But uh, yeah, th- there was definitely a a comfort factor in knowing that I was going, quote unquote, home. Uh, and I was going to be doing this uh, landing at home as opposed to a field somewhere else. Yeah. And then, you know, earlier you mentioned that you were thankful of the CFIs that pushed you to be precise, to be able to, you know, fly the airplane, land on the center line. But I think you also got to give some props to your wife just a couple weeks earlier, pushing you to do a little bit better on this no-flap landing, right? So, you know, some some props to Kirsty there for uh, for pushing you there to be a better pilot. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I I fully uh, agree with that. Um, After it, as you mentioned, I had uh, posted the experience on Facebook and a friend sent me a text uh, about a week later and said, hey, thanks for posting that experience of yours. Uh, I just went out and did a whole bunch of no-flap landings uh, because you reminded me I needed some practice and should probably uh, be proficient with that. Uh, So I, I think that's the big benefit of sharing some of these experiences is letting other people know that, yeah, this stuff can happen to you. And if you are a proficient pilot with your airplane and how it flies and its systems, um, you know, this, uh, we use the word emergency, but it really is, it's a, uh, it's a urgent situation that you're not going to keep flying around and you need to get back on the ground but uh, a, a proficient pilot should be able to deal with it. Yeah, I I agree with you. I, I love hearing that story that somebody just saw that posting and said, hmm, I need to go practice that a little bit. That's why I think aviation is, is uh, so powerful in the way that we handle safety and we keep getting better in our safety record is because we share our stories. We uh, share the things we did well. So thankful for people like you that will share, here's what I did well, here's what I would do differently. And all of us get to sort of chair fly and, th- and put ourselves in that situation and think about it. Uh, I wanted to ask you about something. Recently, I gave a night flying seminar, and in preparation for that seminar, somebody gave me a technique that they always use now that whenever they're taking off at night and it's truly dark, they will always turn their flashlight on. And this person uses a headlamp like I do. They'll turn the flashlight on for takeoff so that if anything happens in that critical phase of flight, it's one less thing they've got to do. They've got the flash light on. Visibility is not an issue. You ever thought about that? What's, what's your thinking on that? I, I have not thought of that, but that, that is a very interesting technique and uh, something that might, I might uh, have to bring into my repertoire because, as we said, I knew where the flashlight was, but uh, having it on and having that uh, source of light from a different power source uh, that is uh, redundancy at that critical phase of flight. That uh, certainly makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I've I've since night flown a couple times and you know turned my headlamp on and and like you mentioned, I I, I have the red and the white setting. I mostly use the red, um, and have done it. And I'm thinking, hmm, I, I I actually like it. It's not that distracting. The light's already on, and as soon as I get the airplane up get the gear up, flaps up, cleaned up, you know, ready and cruise, just reach up there and flip the light off. And so I've gotten to where I'm trying to incorporate that as part of my habit patterns now. Excellent. Excellent. And, and I will, 
I'll say that uh, even after this experience, I, there are many rewards that come along with uh, night flying, and I absolutely do love flying at night. And uh, even sometimes to complete a trip, we need to do that uh, to get from one place to another at these times of the years in the northern latitudes that we uh, live at when it gets dark pretty early. Uh, but I haven't been back up uh, at night, but uh, the experience has certainly not uh, dissuaded me away from wanting to fly at night and uh, all the, the benefits that it has. Yeah, it is a beautiful time to fly. It's typically a little smoother. It's a little cooler, so the airplane's performing. It tends to be a little quieter. There's a little less traffic. I for whatever reason, maybe because there's less traffic, the air traffic controllers just tend to be a little more, have a little more time to, uh, you know, to be a, a little more pleasant uh, or a little more engaging is what I should say. Um, it's just that it, night flying does add a little more risk. And so just to make sure you've thought through some things to manage that risk. And I just can't stress enough what, you know, you're 50 to 100 feet up, you suddenly have total electrical failure on a pretty dark night. And you just flew the airplane. Nerves of steel, everything's fine. The airplane's going to fly fine. Let's get up, get airborne, and then analyze what I got here and and figure out what actions to take. I think you boiled it down very well. Uh, Fly the airplane, uh, go through the troubleshooting of your systems, and make your decisions, figure out how you're going to execute and land the airplane. Uh, Follow your plan. So, Steve, you're down, you're safe, the airplane's in the hangar, you've had a couple days. So uh, what ended up being the problem? What caused the electrical failure? Well, the negative battery cable uh, came off of the battery. Uh, Interesting. Why it came off, uh, I still do not know, Richard. Um, certainly that's something we need to uh, to look at from a, a maintenance standpoint and make sure that... Uh, Going forward, everything is installed properly, but uh, that ended up being the mechanism of failure. Yeah, interesting. It was obviously connected correctly because you had the first part of the flight that went well, and then suddenly it it uh, it disconnected. So, it'll be interesting for you to uh, as you as you figure out why why that happened. But uh, great. Well, Steve, thanks so much for sharing the incident with us. Uh, congratulations on a job well done. It's one of those scenarios that could have ended poorly if you hadn't had the experience and the uh, and the priority that you had. So uh, thanks for sharing it with us. I can't wait to see you in May at the MSPA uh, at, at Madden's on Gull Lake, that beautiful property there. And until then, fly safe. Thank you very much for having me today, Richard. I look forward to seeing you in May. Well, a demanding scenario that Steve made seem rather simple and straightforward. He focused on flying the airplane, and that made all the difference in his uh, night episode. Well, during this episode, we heard Steve Getter talk about using a cell phone while he's airborne, and it got us to thinking, what are the rules around using a cell phone while you're airborne? So we brought in Jared Allen. He's the senior attorney responsible for AOPA's legal services plan. Part of what is under his uh, purview is the Pilot Protection Service. So, Jared, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Can you start first by tell us a little bit about the Pilot Protection Service? What's that all about? Sure, Richard, and uh, thanks for having me. So, uh, as you already know, uh, Pilot Protection Services is part of uh, AOPA's uh, offerings to our members, and it's really two parts. Uh, One is the AOPA Legal Services Plan that helps pilots who have issues with things like FAA enforcement actions or accidents or U.S. Customs Matters, or really any type of aviation-related legal question. 
And the other part is assisting pilots uh, obtaining medical certification uh, through the FAA. And so as part of that, uh, we, on a daily basis, deal with a lot of different legal issues that pilots have. And certainly, uh, questions about cell phone use have uh, come up in the past. And now is a good opportunity to talk a little bit more about the rules that apply. Yeah, great. So help us through that. I know you're a private pilot yourself, instrument rated. So um, what are the rules in terms of using a cell phone airborne in a, in a private GA airplane? Okay, so there's actually two different sets of rules that we have to take a look at. Uh, the first is the rules of the FAA, of course, and the second are the rules of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. So first, let's take a look at the FAA rule, which is FAR 91.21, and that concerns portable electronic devices. So this rule does not prohibit the use of a cell phone as long as the use complies with the rule. Now, this rule applies to both uh, air carrier operations, which we're not too concerned with for this conversation, but also uh, PAR-91 operations or any aircraft operated under instrument flight rules. And so the rule outright prohibits the use of any personal electronic device, including a cell phone, for an aircraft operated under IFR unless one of the many exceptions in the rule is met. And the broadest exception is that the operator of the aircraft, in this case a pilot, uh, can allow the use of that electronic device as long as they determine that that device will not cause any interference with the navigation or communication equipment of the aircraft. Now, in trying to make that determination, the FAA has provided a lot of guidance to pilots. Uh, notably, there's an advisory circular, uh, 91.21D is in Delta, that's out there. Uh, they've also published some information statements or info statements. Uh, the most uh, recent one is uh, info statement 13010, and that'll help pilots consider some of the issues that they may want to look at when it comes to determining whether this cell phone is going to create an issue with the aircraft's electronics and navigation. Uh, now, it's my understanding that many of the electronic devices out there these days don't cause any interference. However, uh, if you look at, for example, the NASA Aviation Safety Reporting System, they still receive a variety of reports from pilots who report instances where they believe uh, use of a cell phone has created interference with either their headsets or their navigation equipment or the aircraft's radio. So it's still something you need to be concerned about. So it sounds like, Jared, broad picture, as long as you, the pilot, determine that using your cell phone doesn't interfere with your comm or your navigation, then you're cleared to use it. Uh, at your at your first uh, indication that it does, then you're kind of obligated to turn it off, which just passes the common sense test anyway, right? Certainly, and I would uh, agree with that, that common sense is, is going to be a big consideration here. If you have any reason to suspect that there may be an issue, you don't want to use that cell phone. So that's the FAA rule, right? Correct. What about the FCC that you mentioned? Okay, so when it comes to the FCC rules, these are a little bit more complicated, and part of it has to do with the fact that uh, the FCC passed some rules way back in 1991 that applied to uh, cell phones at the time. And the FCC's rule outright prohibited the use of certain cell phones in flight. Now, these are phones that use a certain uh, frequency, the 800 megahertz frequency. Uh, and the issue was is that when these cell phones were in flight, uh, they would create harmful interference because they had a greater range from the air and they'd be trying to connect to multiple towers on the ground and interfere with other people's uh, cell phones. And so the uh, FCC passed this outright prohibition uh, on those types of phones. And they also have another rule uh, that typically uh, up applies to prohibit the use of uh, what they call specialized mobile radio frequencies for aircraft that typically fly at certain altitudes. But the point is this, is that 
There are certain restrictions by the FCC. However, there's a possibility that those don't apply to many modern cell phones. And what gets complicated is that you have to speak to your uh, carrier to understand what frequencies your cell phone uses to see whether it's going to fall into these prohibitions because there are many cell phones and carriers that don't use the prohibited frequencies. So you can avoid an issue with the FCC. Now, these types of FCC rules are typically enforced by a fine or what they call a civil penalty or forfeiture. Uh, however, uh, to put it in perspective, we get about 5,000 uh, cases a year uh, through the legal services plan. And this is not an issue we've heard about uh, since at least uh, 2016. Uh, so to give you an idea, uh, especially in uh, an emergency situation, we wouldn't want a pilot to be concerned that I shouldn't use my cell phone to perhaps uh, get some life-saving information because of the possibility of a fine by the FCC. Um, certainly, the use of a cell phone in an emergency would be a very strong mitigating circumstance. Okay. Wow. Well, I thought I understood it when you described the FAA, and then we went to the FCC, and it got a little confusing. So if you had to sort of back up and provide pilots, you know, sort of broad guidance using your cell phone airborne seems to be reasonable thing to do. It's allowed to do as long as it doesn't interfere with your communications and navigation back to the FAA rule, right? Correct. And it seems like if you make that determination, you're probably on pretty safe ground. Fair statement or? With the limitation that the easiest thing for you to do to comply with not only the FAA's rules, but also the FCC's will be to simply reach out to your cell phone provider and say, do you know what types of frequencies my cell phone uses? And there's a lot of websites out there that will help guide you through that process of understanding whether you can use that phone in the air or not. Yeah, great. So uh, that, that's what the prudent pilot would do, right, is figure out what those frequencies are and then reach out to their carrier and figure that out. And maybe that's something the Air Safety Institute can take on uh, here um, in the coming days. Jared, thanks. It's always enlightening to talk to you. Appreciate you joining us and uh, fly safe. Thank you, Richard. So thanks for joining us on There I Was. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was.